series, it's all about a messy church, and this messy church is a church that existed in the first century, and we ask you to do a couple things while we went through this series. First, in 2 Corinthians, two letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote to this church, and we ask you to do these two things. Here's the first one. Just read through it. And so, some of you have been doing that on, you know, kind of your, at your own pace, kind of doing your own thing, kind of find your way through it, maybe reading the chapter, or maybe just reading the section that we're studying through. If you're reading a section we're studying through, and you got the e-news this week, and you read through uh, five chapters of First Corinthians, and we are going for a big, large section of it today, and, um, and so we'll be out by the three o'clock or so. So the other thing we ask you to do is talk about it with some other people and have some conversations about what you're reading. And some of my friends have done that this week because they've been reading through it, and as they've read through it, they hit some speed bumps along the way. Uh, and some of my friends have been reading scripture, and as they read it, they think, I can't believe this is in scripture. Have you ever thought that? Excuse me, I can't believe this is in the Bible. If you haven't, you will by the time we're done today. Um, some of them have been reading it and have thought, oh, this just makes me angry. So just a moment of honesty, who's been ever reading scripture and had this feeling of anger rise up? Anybody? Okay, good, good. Some are more honest than others. It feels like the early church is a little more honest than you, but that's fine. We're all growing, right? We're on a journey, so we'll let you be that way. And so in these discussions, you may have had some chats about some of the verses that didn't seem to make sense to me. Paul writes this in this section that we're looking at. In between verse or chapter 5 all the way to chapter 9, he says this, If you do not have a wife, what does he say? Do not seek to get married. Some of you are single in the room. You see your hands if you're single. All the single people, raise your hands. Very good. There you go. There's your there's your instructions from Scripture. Do not seek to get married. And so, if you were thinking about that, now you know what to do. And as this individual is reading this, a friend of mine reads Scripture, she reads the Scripture and, and reads all of this instruction that Paul gives about marriage, how it ought to work. And Paul has a lot to say in First Corinthians about marriage. And as she's reading it, you know, Paul says this. He says, you know, if you're not married, don't get married. And she thinks, come on, this doesn't make sense. This is where the anger begins to rise up. Didn't God create marriage? And wasn't it God that said it's not good for man to be alone? And so he created Eve. I mean, why would he bother doing that? And then now in the New Testament, Paul comes along and says, nah, just get moving there. Why would he do it? Except he gives this exclusion, right? He gives a, an allowance. If you cannot control your own desires, so my friend said, so I guess if Paul says you're a hot pants, I don't even know what that means. If you're a hot pants, you can get married. And so I thought, oh, it's so true. This moment when you're reading scripture and you think, I, I don't understand what that means. It feels like it's contradicting other parts of scripture. Why do I even bother? And if you've read some of the first Corinthians, then maybe you thought that. In these chapters, Paul covers an incredible variety of subjects. Just in these five chapters, he covers marriage, a lot about marriage. He covers divorce, has a lot to say about divorce, some very strong statements about divorce, to the point where if you've experienced a divorce in your life, you may have read these chapters and gotten maybe the trigger or found yourself feeling a, just a pit of shame starting to rise up in your own heart. He talks about sexual morality among single people, among married people. He talks about disagreements between believers, and in the middle of that, he talks about this thing called church discipline that is even on the list. It is related to all these things. 
And some of you have never been a part of a church that ever did, did church discipline or even what that means, but Paul describes it in these chapters. He talks about lawsuits and slavery and circumcision. Not a lot of New Testament is about circumcision, but more than you would think. And then he goes on to talk about food sacrifice idols. It's this incredible variety of subjects. And when you read these chapters in First Corinthians, you might find yourself thinking, well, there's at least half of these subjects that have nothing to do with me and will never have anything to do with me. Why do I bother? What is this even about? And it gets even more strange when you begin to pull out some of Paul's statements and look at them by themselves. For example, in these chapters, he says this, Are you a slave? You're a slave. He's addressing you. And he says, Don't let that worry you. Can you imagine not being worried about that? I mean, easy for Paul to say he's a free man, right? And what he says to slaves is, You know, if you're a slave, just stay in that circumstance. He gives a caveat. He says, You know, if you get a chance to be free, you should take it. And you want to say, really, Paul, this is what you have to say to people who found themselves in lifelong servitude. He's talking about lawsuits and people feeling like injustice has been done to them. And I know some of your stories enough know that you feel like this has been the case for you. Here's Paul's advice to you if that's the case. Come on, why not just let yourself be cheated? Oh, man, that's a tough pill to swallow, Right? Maybe you got a lawyer on your side telling you what is due to you, what's the code to you, and Paul says, nah, let it go. Let yourself, don't worry about it. And I came across this verse, and I know I've read it before, but it stuck out to me for some reason in the last few weeks as I'm thinking and praying and preparing and wondering about this message this weekend. And it's this verse. Maybe you've never even seen it before. Paul gives this advice. A man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. So I'm just going to leave that there for a minute. Let you ponder that. When you come across a verse like this, it can be disorienting. And I read this and I thought, now, uh, is, that a, is that a thing? Well, I'll let you do the research all on your own, okay? Just... Remember, whatever you see on Google, you can't unsee. And so this this advice that he gives seems to go just a bit beyond the pale. At one point, Paul's talking about these disagreements between believers, and he actually says this, I am saying this to shame you. This is, this is right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Okay, come on. When, when I cry shame people, I don't tell them I'm doing that. Right? You do it behind the corner, underhandedly. Paul says it. This is my motivation for saying this. I'm trying to cause shame for you. And then he says this in the middle of the discussion about marriage. He says, But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Can I get an amen? Anybody want to amen that? You're saying with your spouse, you feel a little awkward. I had a wedding this past week. I've got a wedding this coming week. I'm trying to figure out a way to work this verse into both of those weddings. Just to let them know. And so you might find yourself at times reading scripture and thinking, I, I don't understand why I'm doing that. I, what am I supposed to get from this? The Bible is the center of our understanding of faith. Everything we know about Jesus comes from this book. Our understanding of God's story comes from this book. We, we say often that you should read it and understand it. You will read it for profit and that you will have a better understanding of who God is and 
so many times, I think we find ourselves at a loss with our understanding of our scripture. And so if we could sit down and have coffee together, we could have a conversation about this that isn't just one-sided like this one is, this is what I would ask you. I would say to you this very simple thing. Tell me about your relationship with the Bible. Tell me about it. What's it like? Well, you, you have a relationship with the Bible. I know it's maybe viewed as an inanimate object, but we know it's actually alive. What's your relationship with the Bible? What's it like? But this, this question requires some reflection on your part and requires you to ponder your relationship with Scripture. It might even cause you to think about growing up and the place and the role that the Bible had in either training or either you coming to God or running from God or somewhere in between. What is your relationship with the Bible? And the answer would be different for each one of us in the room, wouldn't it? I mean, some of us would say, well, I have one. That's my relationship with the Bible. I have several. Most of us have at least a few on the shelf. Or some of us are reading it digitally. Some of us are using a Bible that was handed down to us that represents the faith of our dad or our mom or our grandparent. What's your relationship with the Bible? Some of us, if we're honest, will say, we used to be close to the Bible. We used to hang out. We used to spend a little time together. I don't do it anymore. It's because I've read things like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I found myself thinking, what is even the point of reading? I don't understand it to begin with. And it finds me in a place that I don't want to even pay attention to what it says, so it's just frustrating. Or irrelevant to my life, my decisions. So you say, well, you know, we're together now, but we were estranged. I'm trying to spend more time there. And just think about the question. What's your relationship with the Bible like? We used to be closer. I want to know more. Or if I'm being honest, I don't understand why I should. I don't even know why I would want to engage. So if we're honest, we would answer this question the same you would say way we would about most of the other relationships that we have, we would say, well, it's, it's complicated. It's a little complicated. I mean, scripture's complicated. But my relationship with the scriptures is a little bit complicated. So if we encourage you to read First and Second Corinthians, I, I don't know if this has happened much in your life, but this is how I picture it, that, that you are about to begin your day, and, and it's that moment of the day when, when the day hasn't really happened yet, right? I mean, the day hasn't really begun in earnest, and everything is pretty quiet in your house, or maybe in your own heart, or things haven't really started moving and bustling and hustling, and, and you've decided that, you know what, I, I'm going to re-engage, I'm going to start reading a bit, I'm going to sit down, and you find a quiet place in your house, and your Bible is there with you, and you've got your, your coffee or your tea, or whatever it is that helps you wake up a bit, or feel alive as you move through your day, and you open up the scriptures, and you say, well, you know, he said, start, and First Corinthians, and you begin to read these words. First Corinthians 8. Now about food, sacrifice to idols, and you think, ah, you need to me. Why, why, would I, why would I bother to read that? Let's see, anybody sacrifice food this week to idols? Do you know anybody that ever has in their life? Do you have any idea why that matters to you and your walk with God? 
And yet, this is where you find yourself at your show. So, let's be honest about it. Most of us would read that and say, uh, I quit. There's a few of you that are in there that say, you know what, I, I'm going to persist. I'm going to move on. So, you keep going. Now, about you sacrifice the idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. The knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Those who think they know everything do not yet know as they ought to know. And then you think, I, now I really give up. I don't even know what Paul's saying. When Paul writes, he seems to talk in circles. Why would I bother? Now, here's my fear. That as we engage in growing as a church family, as you and I open up Scripture and try to mine some of the truths or the meaning or the depth or beauty in it, that you'll find yourself in the middle of, oh, I don't know, Leviticus or Genesis or Numbers, even in the New Testament, a portion of 1 Corinthians, and maybe this little piece in Ephesians, and you'll be so frustrated that you'll set it aside and you'll begin to believe, mistakenly, but understandably, that the Bible is irrelevant, archaic, and useless for life. Because you're trying to figure out, let's be honest, you're trying to figure out how to live, and how to love, and how to be the person that God's called you to be, how to become more like Jesus every day. And you have a limited amount of time, and certainly a limited amount of mental bandwidth and energy and to invest your life in learning and discussing and pondering an ancient document. Well, at the end of the day, it can feel like it just doesn't matter. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So if you are going to spend some time this week and dig into Scripture, I thought it would be important for us this week to talk about how, how to read Scripture, how to dig into it, and how to, how to glean the most from it. Because what's there and what's available to you can point you in places that nothing else in culture can ever direct you towards. What God wants to do you and I understand in Scripture, He wants to do through inner means. And what the Holy Spirit can use the words of Scripture for, it can absolutely transform your heart and your mind. And so let me give you a couple sort of signposts or maybe guides along the way that will help you as you dig into Scripture. And maybe this will help if you decide to give it another chance or decide to build in some habit of looking at Scripture every day. And so, Here's the first one, and that's important. In fact, it's so important that if you miss this, you'll quit early almost every time. And it's this. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, this church in Corinth, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and let's be honest, a good portion of Scripture, this isn't true of all Scripture, but it's true of a good portion, a vast majority of Scripture. Paul's letter to the Corinthians weren't written to you. They were not written to you. When Paul wrote the letter, to the Corinthian church. We think there are probably four letters. We have two of them. Probably the third and the fourth letter. What we don't have is Paul's first and second letters, but our first Corinthians and second Corinthians. When he wrote these letters, he wrote these letters to a, a very specific group of people at a very specific time in history who lived in a very unique locale. The town of Corinth was well, it was a great place. Any of us who want to vacation there, it was a metropolitan place. They had all kinds of things to do and see. It was a beautiful city. It was also a liberal and progressive in the culture of the day. It would be a lot like, I don't know, Austin, Texas, maybe. Or, and for us, it would be a bit like Boulder, right? I mean, we all love Boulder to go visit and then come home, right? Because Boulder's weird. Austin's weird. Corinth was weird. 
And so this, of course, is, is Paul, Paul is writing to these people, and he's writing to these Jews and Gentiles who come into faith, and how they form the same body of Christ in the first century, a very unique time in history. The words that Paul wrote in this letter, they weren't written to you. And if you understand that at a very basic level, then you have a good place to begin and a place to start. But if you're like me or anybody else who's been through a lot with us this morning, then the very next question will be, well, why am I reading it? If it wasn't me, why am I bothered to even try to understand this? What is it about first century life or Paul or Corinth or believers at that time that has anything to do with me? No wonder I think it's irrelevant. It's true. Paul's letters to the Corinthians were written to you, but don't miss it. It's key. They were written for you. These words were preserved over the last many hundred years so that you would have them in your hands and you would be able to eavesdrop. While Paul explains this brand new idea of God and Jesus says the gospel to people who are just now beginning to try to live it out in their lives. And so, what does that look like? How do we make decisions? How do we build relationships with each other? What matters? And what's important? We have to take what Paul says and, and translate it to our lives, but we first have to understand why Paul said what he said to the people in Corinth, and how does it apply to them, and what in the first century made this important or relevant or even a thing or a deal, and then how does it fit for me, and how do I live? Because it's true, they were written to me, but they were preserved for me, and they were written for me to watch. It's a beautiful thing to watch Paul work out the gospel and the faith this brand new faith that these people who are trying to find their way in the walk of Jesus in the very first time, and you get to have a front row seat to all of their issues. And here's what's beautiful about Scripture, especially the letters of Paul and the book of Acts and the way all of this plays out. There's absolutely no way any religion in the world is attempting to make itself known as a world religion would include the kinds of things that Paul writes about in Scripture. Absolutely no way. The kinds of things he talks about, anybody who's trying to, who's managed the PR of this new movement, would absolutely edit this stuff out. This is unimportant. This doesn't apply. We can't tell people about this. This doesn't make any sense. They'll know who we are. They'll know we're just people trying to find our way. And all of that is included, not just in the Gospels, but in all of the letters. And it's there for you. Why? Because you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to figure your life out in connection to who God created you to be. What has he called you to do? How has he called you to love? What does it look like to forgive? What does the gospel have to do with my life? And the front row seat that you get is incredible. And it is worth the energy, the intensity, the work, and the effort that it will take for you to understand why Paul wrote what he wrote and who he wrote it to 
and look around yourself. Let me say this, and this is unique for our culture and our time. You have never lived in a more wonderful time and place in history to understand Scripture. The tools that are available to you to understand Scripture, just even a couple decades ago, were only available to people who were uh, able to afford all the books, sitting in seminaries, sitting in the company of somebody's you know, professorship, understanding, and knowledge. Not anymore. Everything is available to anybody who wants to do it. It's available to you. And it was written for you. But if you open up First Corinthians, thinking that Paul is going to list a bunch of commands and details about how to shape your life, you're going to find yourself frustrated to no end. If you remember that it was written to you, but it was written for you, then you have a place to begin. And it changes everything you read. That's the first, you might say, signpost kind of waypoint along the way. Here's the second one, and it's important, and it's key. And it's this. As you read Scripture, look for the what? As you read Scripture, look for the what? Say it with me. It's a big idea. It's always there. Sometimes it's just laid out for you, just like that. And sometimes you have to move into your feelings and dig a bit. But as you read Scripture, always look for the big idea. It's there. Because it's written for you. Look for the anchor. Look for the point behind the point. Look for the why that always represents something about the gospel. And why the gospel is true. And why the gospel applies to every moment of your life. It is there, I promise you, every time. And when you begin to look for this, you discover things you didn't know about God's nature, or about His character, or how He loves, or how what He expects, how He interacts with us on a daily basis. All of a sudden, you begin to figure out how the gospel affects all your marriage, every relationship you have at work, your priorities, your ethics, your values, and you become... As you walk through this world without even an understanding of happening in the moment, more like Jesus. Because you've settled in and thought about the big idea. So, in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, all the way to 9, if you read through it, if not, maybe you're a little interested now after seeing that list on the screen. Paul talks about a man in the church, a, a family member of the church, and this incredible sexual immorality thing that's occurring. What should they do with this man? And Paul addresses that question. He also talks about how you should live your life in regards to sexual purity. He digs into that crazy. And then, of course, it flows into a discussion about marriage and what marriage should look like. He even talks about sex within marriage and what that should look like. And so all of these things are in there, and it flows into a discussion about lawsuits and all these things. And you can see that there is a relational component to almost everything he's talking about in these chapters. And then... He lays out the big idea. He knows he's gotten incredibly detailed, and now he wants you to understand exactly why. And so here's what he says. Here's the big idea. In fact, it's written out for you very plainly in about two verses. He says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Did you know that? And so because of that, there's a portion of God that is with you Wherever you go, if you've ever wondered, does God know about the answer is yes. If you've ever wondered, how does he feel about me being there, then you know he was with you, and that changes how you even see it. 
who is in you, whom you have received from God. And then he says this, so let's say yell it together, right? This is a big idea. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Say it with me one more time. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. In other words, Paul is saying this. When you surrendered your life to Jesus, you gave up your right to make decisions based on what you want. You don't get to do that anymore. I know. Isn't that awful? It's just part of it. And you say, but I want what I want. I know, I know. Me too, on Tuesday. But Wednesday, you know, I was a little more surrendered. Then Thursday came, and we being God, we argued about it again. And all of this, of course, is you working out your salvation, as he likes to put it, with trembling and fear. Paul says, you do not belong to yourself. And so when it comes to your decision you have to make regarding your business, how to parent your kids, or what you're going to do with this money or that money, you don't get to decide on your own. Now you will, and you'll bear the consequence, you'll see the fruit from that. But Paul wants to remind you, you have already been purchased. And so this is why he says to slaves. And at that time, servitude was very different than it was than in our country in the 1700s and 1800s. This is why he says to slaves, if you find yourself in this situation, honor God with it the best that you can. This is why he says to me and to you, you do not belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. Now, I'll find that idea in every relationship you have, and you'll find yourself maybe forgetting about some of the intricate details of 1 Corinthians 6. But you'll remember why it was there. Always go after the big idea. So then Paul spends a good number of verses here talking about marriage and how it should work. And he gets up in the details of it. You know why he gets up in the details of it? Because he remembers so-and-so from Corinth. He met them, helped them come to Christ. He knows their names. He's been to their house. He's had dinner with them. He knows them intimately well, and so he wants them to understand how marriage should work. And so he writes the same thing to me. Now, this little nugget, it is the big idea in regards to marriage, is a little harder to find in First Corinthians. But in essence, everything that Paul says about marriage boils down to this. It is one simple statement. Marriage is hard work. Isn't it? And Paul says, if you're married, your heart is divided. You can't just do what the Lord wants. You've got to do what your husband wants. And what your wife wants. And here's how you meet their needs emotionally and physically. Here's how you show up fully and completely in the context of your marriage. And let's be honest, there's some of us that have begun to believe that if we just love each other, then we get us through all the bumps and bruises of married life. It isn't love enough. And we've seen too many romantic comedies. And we believe that love is a feeling. And once we got married and we found the right person, isn't marriage just going to be fine? And Paul says, no, it's not. It takes hard work every day. Every day you have to decide to live your life on behalf of another. You still have to read the books and show up at counseling. You still have to decide that you are going to make it your endeavor, your purpose endeavor, to become the best husband or the best wife you can become. And here's the, the hard and wonderful and awful news. That 
never doesn't have an end. You must always continually figure out ways. When your life doesn't have an end, you're in a new season now, right? You're starting to empty nest, so now you have kids. Or now you're trying to figure out how your life is going to be sorted out together, whether you're living near your in-laws. All of these things continually shift and change that always challenge you to live on behalf of another. It is continual, always on, hard work. This is what people who know deeply have been married for 50, 60 years. They know this. It's not their heart. Full of joys, not none of it. Rich in intimacy, like you've never experienced. Hard work. Every day. In fact, the only thing worthwhile, the only thing worthwhile is giving yourself to work like that. So when you read scriptures, look for the big idea. And you probably will get hung up on some of the details that may or may not be for you. Like we all pray to hear without our head covered. I don't know if you know, but that's the kind of commitment that we do that. Some of you got married when you knew you didn't need to get married because of your passion or your lust. Well, Paul advises against that. The doctor says in marriage will have a whole lot of trouble. And they'll say, well, tell us something we don't want. And so in the middle of this, we look for the big idea. And the truth is that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth all the time. A few weeks ago, I talked about how we had some trees in our garden and died and lots of trouble with trees. And us learning about trees and all those kinds of things. And what I said about us learning from the, the people at the nursery, I said, no, these just trees won't plant some trees. It shouldn't be this hard. And you all kind of agreed with that. There's areas of your life where you would say, you know, I just thought this was just going to work out. It shouldn't be this hard. I'm going to start a new job. It shouldn't be this hard. I'm just trying to raise some kids. It shouldn't be this hard. It's like in a chuckle, right? And this is what we think it shouldn't be. So we bought this. We planted some new trees. And then we saw some older trees. Trees we planted a year ago last fall. Saw them in our backyard. And we got a little worried about them. And we thought, oh, they look a little, I don't know, whatever, but not healthy. And so we weren't sure what to do. And we invested some significant money in these trees to, you know, create some screens and create some privacy for our backyard. The last thing we would want is for these trees to, you know, at this point, die. So we needed some expert opinion. If you need expert opinion about a tree, who do you call? An arborist, right? You call an arborist. So we did. We called an arborist. And this gentleman, young dude, while you and I were off getting our bachelor's in whatever, he was at CSU studying trees. For four years, the man studied trees. How could you study trees for that long? What is there to know about a tree? For four years? Are you kidding me? He has an undergraduate degree, and now he wears probably this label, arborist. And he comes to our house, he looks at our trees, and tells us all about them. And this is his goal while he's there. His goal is to turn us into junior arborists. Right? Because he doesn't live with me. I mean, I have an empty bedroom, but whatever, it would be creepy. He doesn't live with me, so he knows. When I leave, these people need to know what to do with their trees. And turns out, we are so unique and so damaging to things that live, we can, underwater and overwater, at the exact same time. Did you even know that could happen? And he says, this is what's happening. You know, so he describes it to us. You need to know how much you water. You need to know what? Well, I know how long the hose runs. Do you know how much water gets to your tree? No, I have no idea. You turn the hose on and you turn it off. Oh, you need to know how much water gets to your tree. How many of you measure how much water gets to your trees? Can you see Anybody? Well, now that's what we're doing. So we got a bucket. We turn our hose on. We ran it for X number of minutes to see how much water comes out of our hose. 
because how else would you know if you're underwatering or overwatering, right? I mean, all of you are just doing terrible things to your trees, I'm telling you right now. And so we began to do that in private, decide how much and when, and we had to space our waterings out because if you water too much, it's not that they get too wet, it's not a problem. It's that the problem is, is that when they get too wet, it drives the oxygen out and the tree can't breathe. And I love to breathe. I don't want my trees not being able to breathe. And so I identify with that feeling. I want to breathe, my trees want to breathe, and they want to grow. It's complicated, but I think it shouldn't be as hard. I remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 1, that the men and women who meditate on the law of the Lord, the words of God, and this is what happens to them. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Isn't that beautiful? Tell us what you want. This moment when your patience is being tested, and all of a sudden there's this fruit already grown on your spiritual tree of patience, and instead of returning with this harsh statement or this judgmental attitude or, or meanness or whatever it is, apathy, you, you provide patience and love in this moment in your relationship. Don't you want that? This is what the psalmist says. It yields its fruit in season, and the leaf does not wither. It's, it's open and receives the sunlight. And, boy, as it turns out, take soil and water and roots and have them grow in wood from thin air and leaves and pine needles. Well, it's a miracle. It's a complex process. And you want that for your life, don't you? You want to find yourself in a situation instead of returning hate for hate. You return love. You return joy, even when things do not call for joy. When you're struggling, you find yourself giving the very life of Jesus into every circumstance you could imagine. This is exactly why this book has been preserved for me and for you. That we return to it, that we would digest it, that we would soak it up. Little Hebrew babies long before Jesus was born, and up to the time Jesus was born, when they were little tiny babies, they would be given the tablets of the Torah. And the mom and dad would pour honey on these tablets of the Torah. Of course, you know what the baby would do, right? Maybe would see the Torah and read it. They talked about the big words, and then they would see the honey. And they would just be able to lick the honey off the tablet of the Torah. So the psalmist says that we are a taste of the sea, that God is good. A beautiful picture of the nourishment that can come from Scripture. But don't, don't take that too far. This is not the object of our faith, this is not the center of what we believe, here's what Jesus said. He said this to the Pharisees who had made the scriptures an idol. And they, they worshipped the scriptures. And they put the scriptures in place of who God was. Now, I'll do that. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. What does he say? Say you with me. But the scriptures point to me. That's what it's about. Everything is driven to Jesus. Everything focused on who Jesus is. 
every word that you hear is written so that you would become intimately connected to who Jesus is. Is the Bible then a heavy rule book for you sent on your side? Is the Bible then a measuring stick by which you judge other people sent on side? Is the Bible within anything other than what Jesus describes sent on side? And open it and allow your roots to become like a stream, nourished by water, so that you have the food that you need in season. And allow it to point you to a relationship with Jesus that is unlike any other, intimate, knowing, and loved. Let me pray for you. Lord, we ask in this moment this morning that we would take a different view of your scripture. And so we ask that you would forgive us of ideas regarding the scriptures that has kept us distant from them that has kept us believing it's an archaic book and it's irrelevant to our lives, that have made us distant from you, Lord. And so we ask that we would return to the Word in a, in a new way, with a different understanding of who you are and what the Word is for, that we would allow the, the truth of Scripture to drive us to your Son and our relationship with Him. And so help us to always always, always see you in the middle of the story, and that you save us as we go. In the name of Jesus, we pray this together, and we all say, Amen.